Hello, and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. I've got something a little different for you this week. I'll be traveling a few days this week, so I recorded this conversation with the documentary filmmaker Toby Ames. He's a British filmmaker who recently released a documentary film about the progressive rock band King Crimson. But don't get worried. The reason I'm featuring this film and this conversation with Toby is because, as you may know, not that I really cover a lot of documentaries on the podcast. In fact, I don't think we've done any. But if you follow the show's Instagram feed, I watch a lot of documentaries and I watch particularly a lot of rock documentaries. And I have thoughts and I have feelings. When I see a film that transcends the genre, and by that I mean a documentary film that's made with emotional intelligence, filmmaking chops, a point of view, a declarative sense of itself, I'm impressed because it's few and far between, particularly in the documentary market as it exists today, which is something Toby and I discuss him to hilariously blunt extremes. However, I really enjoyed this film and I shared about it on Instagram because I kind of want to encourage people to see it, even if you're not interested in the subject matter. I mean, the people that would be King Crimson fanatics will probably, as with most films about bands that people love or that have devoted incredibly knowledgeable fan bases, those people will probably not be pleased with the documentary. I don't really know. Maybe they think it's great. I haven't really investigated what the King Crimson fan community thinks about the documentary. That's not what we're here for. I'm here because this community of people who enjoy the films that I tend to enjoy and enjoy the things that I enjoy about the films that I share with you here, I think we'll find a lot to enjoy in this documentary, which, as I said, transcends its subject matter in interesting and unique ways. Now, by brief background of the band King Crimson, not that you need to know anything about it whatsoever to jump in and watch the film, but it's a progressive rock band with its origins in the late 60s. And 50 years later, the time that this documentary was filmed by Toby, the band is still performing with an original founding member, Robert Fripp, and a cast of characters who have come and gone over the years. The current iteration of the band is interviewed, followed on tour, and there are some interesting aspects of the fan experience that are shared. But for me, what's unique about the film is for a person who really loves music and is a very involved fan of several musicians or musical acts, chief among them, you've heard me talk about The Grateful Dead, Dead and Company, Bob Dylan, Pink Floyd. You know, these are acts that I know quite a bit about through reading and experiencing the music. And there are varying degrees of satisfaction to be had by exploring the documentary efforts that pertain to these acts and bands. You know, we don't always get the docs that we want, and 
Sometimes we get the docs we need. But King Crimson as a musical act is not really the focus of the documentary. As you'll hear Toby say, it's really a documentary about music and death. Although it is uplifting and suffused with the stuff of living present in each moment of each day. It challenges our expectations of what a band acts and sounds like. It raises interesting questions about what is the communal experience that occurs when an audience and a band come together for a musical performance? And the fact that both of those entities need the other in order for the thing itself to be present. These and many other things are topics in this fascinating documentary, which I encourage you to seek out. So here, without further ado, is my conversation with Toby Ames about the documentary In the Court of the Crimson King. I'll be back for a bit at the end. So for our conversation, you know, I don't, I thought that the interview you did on that YouTube podcast I saw with those two erudite British gentlemen was fantastic. And oh, I thought you didn't like it. I was, oh, confused. no, I loved that. I liked it. Oh, no, no, okay. no, 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 I loved it. I thought it was, I, what I meant was, I'm not going to try to do that because that's been done. They, they covered, oh, I they covered, you do whatever you'd like to do. Yeah, I'm they, at your they, service. Yeah, they covered the nuts and bolts of how the film came to be, your experience of making the film. Some of that we will talk about. But in general, I just kind of like to have a free-flowing conversation and let it go where it goes. Usually in a document, I watch a ton of documentary films. I watch a ton of rock documentary films in particular. Usually I cringe when I hear the director's voice off camera. But for some reason, yours instantly let me know I was on very sure footing, uh, even though that was a device that I was going to be exposed to in the film. Do you have any aversions like that to tropes of documentary films people who don't like my films will find this hard to believe but when i make a feature doc i normally say to the editor i want to the be in this film as little as possible i it is not necessary for me to be in this film unless it is necessary to be in this film as it were <laughs> but i also you know, I have two commitments as a filmmaker, I suppose. One is to truth and the other is to beauty. And truth comes first. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you are honest about the process by which the film is made, then you are telling the audience that they are watching a constructed version of reality or experiencing a constructed version of reality, a subjective perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that... That allows me to create a bond of trust with the audience, which then allows me to present reality as I see it. Um, so it's important in that sense, I suppose. It's not so much me being the voice there, it's making the audience aware that they are watching a film that is being constructed. 
Um, and I, I'm a firm believer in that idea that, you know, that the moment you start filming something, you change its nature anyway. Right. And it's to me, it's much more of a conceit in the negative sense of the word to pretend that it's fly on the wall. Absolutely. You know, that, that seems to be much more fictional um, than than being open about the process of, of making the film. Plus, it just gives me... It gives me so much freedom as a filmmaker because if things start to go tits up, as we say in the UK, you record it. <laughs> as you um, do many times in the film. Yeah, and it and it you know there's no drama without conflict and so on yeah. and so if, if things are going wrong then it's it's great and I'm just here to to provide something that is you know true possible hopefully beautiful but and also entertaining um, for an audience so if if things if the joke is on me then then that's fine I also used to work as a television presenter, which is, you know, it's a, it's a job that you can only do if you've got an enormous ego. <laughs> but I also recognized at some point that it was going to be doing that job, I think is a significant barrier to personal development. <laughs> um, that is very so, well said. And also I used to work as a portrait photographer and I didn't take pictures of celebrities. I used to take pictures of, generally speaking, normal people who've done abnormal things. Mm. When you turn up to take somebody's picture, I think you've got, there's a fundamental choice. You're either taking a picture of your relationship with that person or you're taking a picture of a human being having their picture taken. And mm. the first one is much, much more interesting mm. to me. And that's what I end up filming. And inevitably, there needs to be a bit of me in there to to give the audience an understanding of the point of view that's in operation. But the idea really is that there's enough of me to get you into the situation, but there's not so much of me that it becomes my story. I want to be the, the conduit mm -hmm. by which the audience gets to experience the subject, basically. And if if the relationship is fractious, let's say... Let's say you're working with an incredibly complicated and talented individual, um, one who it's not so much that they want to be in control, it's more that they're uncomfortable if other people are in control, mm -hmm. I think it would be mm -hmm. fair to say. I'm not mentioning any names here at all. Of course. Um, then, um, you know, you want you want everybody to feel comfortable, but it's just interesting to have that that interplay. So... It's not so much I want the audience on my side. I want the audience to feel like they're the one behind the camera. I'm so glad to hear you talk about documentaries as a construct. Watching so many documentaries as I do, one of the things that's dangerous about the moment we're living in where there are so many documentaries on these streaming platforms is I hear all the time people tell me, oh, I saw this great documentary. Did you know this is the way this is because they watched the documentary? Now, I watch documentaries with obviously probably the same type of critical eye that you do. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm in it. I'm willing to go with it. I don't have to dissect it as I'm experiencing it. But part of me, because I'm in the business as well, I'm, I'm thinking about how this is made and what I'm being told, what I'm not being told, what I'm being served. And it's increasingly important to me, or maybe it always was, and I'm just more aware of it given the volume of things that I'm watching that a very, very, very small percentage of documentary films are made with the thing that you're talking about. The awareness of the thing that we're making 
and a commitment to put forth not the truth per se, but a truth as experienced because so many things are just full of shit and are not truthful to anything except a, a cinematic ideal that doesn't have anything to do with the story. I'll give you an example. I don't know if you saw the recent uh, Gotti series they did on Netflix. Um, it's called Getting Gotti, I think. This is, this is the second in a series of these very highly produced, very expensive cinematic documentaries about the mob in New York City. They're not cinematic. There's, there, let's, let's try to preserve both of our futures at Netflix, perhaps. But let's just say that when I watch them, I am almost entirely consumed with being manipulated and not being given what I know to be more of the truth than the film is putting forth, because that's a subject I happen to read widely about. Hmm. And when the film is so in love with the version of its main subject that it doesn't allow any nuance or capacity for the subject to be multidimensional, I know I'm not on good, I can't, I can't trust the film that I'm watching. But most people don't watch things that way, unfortunately. And I think there's an increasing gulf between this information society we're living in and how difficult it is to sift through narratives that were being given and arrive at some kind of believable truth. And it requires so much work that, of course, most human beings aren't going to do it. Mm. And I don't always do it either. But that's something I really value in a, in a great documentary film, is that if you don't know anything or even care about the subject matter, yet the experience of watching the film is going to tell you something about human life that is the mark of a truly great film to me. And I think this film, which on the surface is probably off-putting to 99% of people who are not King Crimson freaks, of which that's already a very small subset of humanity probably. Very particular one. A very particular one, yes. That's what I wanted to lead with in my championing of this film for people who listen to my podcast and for people who follow the Instagram account is that I thought in a lot of important ways, it's not really even about King Crimson at all, even though it really is. And you get the history of the band and you see so many fascinating characters, but ultimately it's about how we live and how we treat each other. And yes, this fascinating prickly person at the center, but also this constellation of people that revolve and come and go from his orbit, which are equally fascinating. One of the things I wanted to ask you was if it was hard to maintain a focus, because for me, I'm Googling all of these people that you're introducing me to, and they all have these fascinating, incredible live stories as well. How did you stay, how do you stay focused and not go down the wormhole of someone so ridiculously fascinating? Like um, who's the one I just mentioned to you the other day on Instagram? Uh, the, who, Michael Giles. Not Michael Giles, the one who became an artist and has all these philosophical... Oh, Jamie Muir. Oh, my yes, God. So Jamie Muir you could is make like... A, you could make a film about Jamie Muir easily. He was the most in, extraordinary character. Incredible he character. Told me that when he left King Crimson, he uh, he went and joined a Buddhist monastery in, in Scotland, Scotland <laughs> and he got kicked out for punching a llama, <laughs> which is probably the least Buddhist thing you can think of. Or the most. We don't know. <laughs> Oh my God, what a fascinating character. What a fascinating life. The kind of person who you read just two sentences 
that this guy's uttered, and it, it's like contains this profound truth about making music or about how you conduct yourself in a in a group setting, let alone a band. So uh, I don't know if those you have very brief snippets of people like him who tell important parts of the story. Uh, how do you not fall in love with his story? Not that you would go down that rabbit hole, but is it hard not to put more of him in? Well, the first thing is, is that I, I have, I, I, I don't have many sort of aphorisms or mottos, but one that I do try and stick to as much as possible is that no one ever walked out of a cinema saying that film was too short. <laughs> I can't, I, I can't conceive of making a film over 90 minutes. I don't want to allow myself to make a film that's over 90 minutes. Right. The Not that I necessarily slavishly try to achieve that everything that, that Robert Fripp and David Singleton, the King Crimson manager, suggested that I should with the film. They, they did say um, a couple of things with regards to that the film should be, you know, should, should explore what, what music mm. is. Um, and, and also it's quite interesting when we're putting the credits together, there's the, the first page of credits, which is everybody who's in the film. The second page of credits is everybody who's not in the film. Mm. Um, because I was acutely aware that in order to keep the film entertaining and, I mean, it's ironic that the film about a prog rock band is relatively short, <laughs> of course, but, but in order to do that, to keep it at a sort of reasonable length, I had to accept that, that certain people would get cut out. Mm. And so the film tells enough of the history of King Crimson for you to understand some of the dynamics at play and, and the sort of the, the timeline, as it were. But it doesn't seek to tell the history of King Crimson in the way that a more traditional documentary does because I'm like, it, that's just in the past. And this is a film about being in the moment mm, as mm. much as it is anything else. But crucially, being in the moment in 1969 is still being in the moment, whether as it is in 1974 mm -hmm. or, or, you know, in... 2001 or whatever mm -hmm. it's i mean it's it's still in you're still in the moment yeah. so there's a it's not really a conceit but there's an idea at play that says that like there's a degree to which paying playing bass in king crimson is playing bass in king crimson whether that's in 1969 or whether that's in i'm terrified mm -hmm. of saying a date when king crimson weren't actually active but at right. a later date so there's a point at which you, i think that I don't need to have three different people tell me what it's like to play bass in King Crimson, which mm. allows me then to sort of go, well, perhaps we don't use, for example, say Peter Giles, who mm -hmm. played in an earlier mm -hmm. iteration of the thing. And obviously, famously, you know, um, uh, I believe three of the bass players in King Crimson are no longer with us, if mm. that's that's Boz Bohr and, and John Wetton and, um, and Greg Lake. Mm -hmm. So... Um, but but the idea is is that is that people operate as a kind of almost as, as like a Greek chorus, mm -hmm. you know that that if you've got you've got somebody to, you've got Michael Giles talking about drumming in King Crimson, then you understand what it is like for Jeremy Stacy to mm -hmm. play drums in King Crimson to a degree. Um, so so you don't want to have 
people saying the same thing over and over again. And once somebody said something that is of use to the audience, then you cut to somebody else saying something that's of mm -hmm. use to the audience. That's kind of the basic principle that's at play there. And then it's, this always amuses me that the film opens with a skull with a metronome in it. Mm. Right? And no one has said to me, I cannot believe what a lazy, cheap, incredibly <laughs> obvious metaphor you use to open your film to tell us that this is a film about time and death mm. and the relationship between those two things. Mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, you know, that's it. There's only the manager, David, who, who sort of said, it's a bit obvious. Um, but it is, it is about time and death. And I, I, with regard to what you were saying earlier about how many of these, you know, I said, you said these Netflix documentaries. Netflix can fuck off as far as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> because not only because they didn't buy the film and make me a millionaire, <laughs> you know, obviously is a concern. Well, they're not going to do it now, Toby. Shit. No, well, fuck them. I don't care. <laughs> I'm an artist. They don't make art. You know, they, they make product. And what they do is they, 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 they present themselves as. That's why I got annoyed when you said it's the, the, these are documentaries are cinematic. Mm. They're not cinematic. What these are is very, very expensive television that is an expression of an increasingly monopolistic power over culture. Mm. That's why they can fuck off as far as mm -hmm. I'm concerned, because they don't make art. They don't create art. And what they are doing is actively destroying the middle ground of cinema where you used to have often uncomfortable but often quite successful mix between art and commerce and that doesn't exist less mm. and less the irony is of course is that that does leave a significant gap for for entrepreneurial artists to 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 fill is i do think that actually there is um to be positive about it there is room now for independent filmmakers to recognize that there is a there's an audience out there and you can actually reach them. Mm -hmm. Although the various cartels that own the distribution systems make it difficult to reach them, you can reach an audience now as an independent filmmaker mm -hmm. and potentially monetize that to the point, as long as you're pretty thrifty with your budgets. You're not going to make a $60 million movie as an indie and, and recoup necessarily without recourse to the majors, you know, the major streamers and so on. Um, but... Um, it's important to make the distinction between streaming television making documentaries and there's as you say there's a lot of money involved you mm -hmm. can't really blame them for not being very uh forward thinking or experimental or creative in terms of how they format these documentaries versus you know works of 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 documentary cinema which mm -hmm. is an art form and and i think as an artist and i think king crimson are a great example of this as an artist, it's your duty to change the shape of the medium that you work in. So, so playing with the form and investigating and examining and changing how you tell the story is a really important part of, of working in that medium mm -hmm. anyway. And, and But the my experience of that as a maker is that any time I have some really clever idea or conceit and I think, oh, this will be great because they'll be able to write about it at the festivals mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that always fucks up. But but the really interesting thing is that in just making the film and sort of having to patch it together from all of my, you know, hastily filmed interactions with the band members, 
and there's lots been lots of chatter about this online about how it looks a bit like a vlog you know or a video diary and stuff and it's just like that's the only way i could get the interview you know it's, mm-hmm. it was dark and that was the only time that person would talk to me so and it's slightly out of focus because if i didn't put that in you wouldn't get it in the film and that's so i've just got to deal with it um but in doing that you know to to return to the idea of truth you've got you know, there are quite a lot of times you'll have somebody, I'll be talking to Jeremy or Gavin in Tokyo or whatever, and then you'll cut to, like, backstage in Oslo and then you'll cut to mm-hmm. backstage in Leipzig or something. We never put any captions mm-hmm. in there or something because it's just fucking backstage, yeah. wherever it is. It's yeah. like, so So once you're in that band and once you're in this, like, touring world, I think it's like, it is. it doesn't matter because it's just the same. You're just on... Mm-hmm. The same experience pretty much no matter where you are. This is the food changes slightly. Right. The hotels are slightly different, but the experience of being backstage and playing the gig is basically the same. Well, you have that great section from the from one of the roadies who just gives a hilarious soliloquy about it's all the fucking same, blah, yeah. blah. Yeah. You know. But to your point, I'm I'm surprised people complain. I guess people complain about everything online, but I mean, to my earlier point about when you know you're watching something that's good and you know right away, usually. Very, very rarely do I have an experience of watching something where I get the uh-oh signal, but then it turns around on me and it turns out to be really good. Mostly I get that this is going to be great or this is going to be good signal right away. And the things that you're talking about that people might nitpick at, they don't even occur to me when I'm watching it. I mean, I noticed that. I noticed the time shift part, but I mean, yeah, that that's the story is not relative to a linear interpretation of time. Right, no. you could have fossey time. There's a reason it exists, is because you're making a film. You don't have to do those things. You don't have to lay them out. Let me ask you this: Are you a musician yourself in any way? I mean, I often say to people, I, "There's no way I would have ended up as a VJ on MTV if I could sing." Um, <laughs> but I, I, uh, what I am is a DJ. Okay, how English so of I, you. I started DJing when I was at art school at 19. And that is how I pretty much made my living until I started working for MTV. Mm. Um, and I still do it now, although it's harder and harder to do it into your late 50s because mm-hmm. I like to play relatively esoteric music. Mm-hmm. I love to get everybody dancing. I mean, the, the, the irony is, is, that, is is that I think... One of the things that DJing and filmmaking have in comparison in, in common is that they are both intensely focused on the audience experience. Mm. And and the for DJing, it's great because just be like, you turn up, you've got an empty dance floor, and you look around the room and you think, well, if I can get her dancing, mm-hmm. then he'll probably make it on the dance floor because he's I've seen her, you know, and, and so you're but you're immediately responsive to the audience, and that is great. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're making a film, you know, for me, I make films in a shed in my garden. I edit them anyway. Um, this, you can probably see the level of professionalism that's in operation here. <laughs> um, let's call and, it a can, let's call it a can-do DIY spirit. Yeah, there we go, punk rock. Um, and but but so much of that process is is anticipatory. You're you are, but you're still thinking about whether somebody's going to do it. You were saying earlier, I like the film because it, it's not telling me what to think. It's mm-hmm. not laying everything out in terms of archetypes and these traditional. Mm-hmm. And um, But the irony of that is that 
the the great film, filmmaker Ernst Lubitsch, you know, he was famous for this thing called the Lubitsch Touch. Mm-hmm. Billy Wilder, you know, had mm-hmm. this famously had a sign above his desk saying, "What would Lubitsch do?" And and what Lubitsch does is he, and he, I think he says this. He says, "If you give the if you tell the audience that two plus two equals four, you've lost them." Right? It's just lecturing. Right. What you do is you you give them two and you give them two and then you let them work out mm-hmm. four and then they're part of the process, you know, and and so that's that's how I construct the film. Is I just think is I, I talk to I have this um, very talented assistant um, at the moment, Sam, and I'm and then I just say to him, you just have to think when you're editing, you're saying, that you're going. It's like you're telling a story to the audience, obviously, but what you're doing is you're going. So this there's this mm-hmm. person, and then you go you go, you wait for them to go. Okay, got it. Mm-hmm. And they go, and he's got to do this thing. Mm-hmm got it and then and you know you sort of build it up like that but you're not you, you you're allowing them it's really important to to make if you're making cinemas to get the audience really engaged with it and and you don't do that i think by just like filming a wikipedia article right. or something just fact after fact after fact and it's and with a character like robert it's really important to have you know i made the film twice i don't know if you know this do you know this story? no i didn't know that yeah, so so basically, I got commissioned to make the film by by Robert and David Singleton, manager, and they, and they didn't interfere at all, except that when I was making the film, filming on tour, Robert basically would literally walk out of the room if I started talking to him, <laughs> which is funny, right? And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is great. This is like you know, it goes back to the thing. It's like it's this fractious relationship, and I could see that it would be quite interesting. On film, but it was all I got. Mm. And is that out of a purity to his performance as is portrayed in the film, or is that just? I think it's due to lots of things, to okay. be honest. And it's not really for me to. I've said earlier, you know, that like I worked out about halfway through the film because I was like, I don't understand. Is right, right. And I was like, I had a word with myself. Yes. I was like, <laughs> yeah, you are not. Going to you try and work out what's going on in Robert Fripp's brain. Right. Many have but, tried. Yeah. By all means, let the audience go through that mm-hmm. particular hell. So, so I think it was lots of things. I think that you know, I sort of, I suppose, I took it as not as a compliment, but I thought, well, maybe I'm getting a little bit closer than he's comfortable mm. with. Um, but I'm not there to exploit him. I'm not there. I'm not interested yeah. in that kind of. Um, and I didn't want to unpeel him like an onion because I'd like there's something really beautiful about mystery. I mm-hmm. think, but at the same time, I think he was uncomfortable with some of that. It was my sense, but it would. You know, there's a question mm-hmm. better asked of him. I think also, I think he quite enjoyed fucking with me a bit, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that also, as you, as you, you know, pointed out, a lot of it had to do with the fact that he didn't want some dick mm-hmm. getting in his business when he's thinking about having to play Fracture in an hour. And so how did that you turn know? into having to do it a second time? So what happened is that, like, I was keen to get the film done and get it into festivals and so on. So I sort of made that version of the film, which was my experience up until the point where I started editing and I started editing in order to make the Sundance deadline, which is something I would recommend no filmmaker ever fucking does. (laughs) So what I made was an accurate representation of my experience working and filming with King Crimson up until the point where I started editing And a friend of mine who's an actual musician called Steve Mason, who was in that band, that excellent band, the, the Beta Band, 
he was very interesting. He's the only person that I showed that version of the film to, and he said, well, "You know, I, I don't really don't really like it." Mm. And I was like, "Why not?" And he said, "I just find that guy really difficult." Mm. And and it was true because the the version of Robert that I was allowed access to up until that point was a very hard person to spend time with. And if you think, you know, again, that my experience and the audience's experience in the film is analogous, that they were like, Ugh. you were like, why is he not talking to you? You know, why is he not talking to me and stuff? So I made that version of the film. It had a great title, which Robert came up with, which was Cosmic Fuck, spelled F-U-K-C. So Cosmic yeah. Fuck, Prog Rock, Pond Scum, set to bum you out. Um, and... It just sort of like tumbleweed, mm. you know. Nobody liked it. Didn't get into any festivals. I didn't know what the fuck to do. And then I got invited over to Robert's house to watch it with him and his wife and the manager. And I was like, they're just going to rub my nose in it. And they had already seen it, as far as you know, by that point? They'd seen it, okay. yeah. And you, let me, let me point of clarification. Were you beholden to them, to Robert and the manager, to turn in a film that they approved of in a... No, no, no. no not, not in any way. Okay. I want to be very, very clear that the film ended up costing at least three times what we originally discussed, although the original figure, I think, was unrealistic. But nevertheless, right. it ended up costing. And at no point whatsoever did they attempt to change it creatively at all there was some muttering mm -hmm. about the cost of it and you know then you know you could say that robert attempted to control the film by how he behaved on camera and so on but but fundamentally no they had no okay. they're just they're like and this is the thing as i was going to say is that like i had a strong sense of of i was i was beholden to them in terms of honor mm because they treated me with honor creatively mm -hmm. so i was this is not this is not a relate it's a very difficult and complicated and total head fuck of a relationship but where it actually really matters which is in the making of the art they were completely honorable fascinating and, and amazing and and since making the film people have said to me you know what what do you want to do next and i said i would like somebody else to give me x mm -hmm. hundred thousands of of dollars uh, to make a film and not interfere in the creative process anyway whatsoever. <laughs> simple. And simple that's right here, a man of simple requests, up. ladies and gentlemen. And I'm not talking millions. Yeah. I'm not talking Just a few I'm hundred thousand. I get you. I, yeah. I have the same dreams. So then I presume what you're going to say is then you had this screening. In my head, I'm thinking, then Robert or Tova or the manager said, you know, Robert, what you really got to do is give him a little of this and let that help where we're going. And that that then so happened. happened. Is that true? No, what happened is I walked into Robert's house and as I was walking in, he said, I was just watching that Taylor Swift documentary. Mm -hmm. And the Taylor Swift documentary was the one that got into Sundance when my film didn't. Mm. And and I was like, oh, yeah, what did you like about the Taylor Swift documentary? <laughs> and he said, it's got lots of her music in it. And yeah. that's where you truly find an artist is in their music. That's what he said. Yes. Mm. He didn't say, I think you should put more music in the film. He just said that, you know, I think that that's where you find King Crimson is the music. And I was like, that's a, you know, I think that's a fair criticism because I tend to focus on on the characters mm. rather than the music. Um, and then I said, do you know the other thing that the King Taylor Swift documentary's got in it, Robert? And he said, no, what's that? And I said, it's got the active participation of the person <laughs> itself. 
So that translated mm. into a three-day-long interview. Okay. Which was, I think... So all that I, stuff I think, we see of him standing, sitting in his home, <clears throat> that location yeah, where he's in the hallway the with best. the cords and yeah. the windows, That's this yeah. is all the... Yeah. This is what you... You got him to do those things, uh, which, yeah, that's fascinating because I can't imagine the film without them. No. But it's, but the, I mean, the irony is, is it probably in total in the film, it's maybe, I would say it's almost certainly under 10 minutes of footage mm. that goes from that three-day-long interview, which was, I think, harder for him than it was for me, but it wasn't pleasant for either of us. <laughs> but that sort of unlocked it mm. more. And I think that also... I mean, I can't say for sure because I don't know what goes on in Robert's head, but mm -hmm. I, my sense is that, like, that, that maybe he was, if not more respectful of me, then he was maybe more, had more understanding, was more respectful of the, of the mm -hmm. process um, in order to do that. But for whatever reason, it, it provided the material that sort of unlocked more of his mm. thinking behind the music and... And certainly it allowed um, us to see more of him. And I think that, like, my first film, The Man Whose Mind Exploded, which is the reason I got this film, is mm -hmm. that Robert and Toya were uh, great fans of that film. Um, I used to sort of glibly say that it was a cubist portrait of a surrealist because mm -hmm. subject Draco had worked with um, with Dali. Um, and I just think I love that idea of cubism, that to truly understand something, you have to see it from several different points of view, mm -hmm. ideally simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, and and so, you know, and I'd known Robert socially. So when I was making the first version of the film, it's sort of it's entirely appropriate that our relationship should change from personal to professional and, and would change in that process. But at the same time, I was like... I'm missing your humor mm -hmm. and your and your empathy mm -hmm. here and and also you know I'm very I'm very aware that that that, that whilst he must be might be frustrating on occasion he's got this this reputation when we were watching the first version of the film Prog Rock Ponscom set to bum you out there's a bit in that where Jacko quotes Bill Bruford mm. and says of course Bill Bruford described Robert Fripp as like a cross between Joseph Stalin, Mahatma Gandhi, and the Marquis de Sade, <laughs> at which point Robert laughed, looked over at me, and said, all leaders in their field. That is brilliant. But he has got such a brilliant sense of humour. Yeah, he really and I does. I, I, I think that comes through. I the ending of the film too much, but it's so important to mm. me um, that insofar as that, the, the, and it's, this, it's reductive to say that this is what the film is, but insofar as there's a degree, degree to which there's back and forth between me and Robert, and it's very obvious who's got all the power in mm -hmm. that relationship. And I think that's something that's, that does interest me in, in documentary work is, is examining how people who have power operate mm -hmm. with that. Um, but the, uh, the way the film ends... You know, I think it's a it's a nice resolution to that that process mm -hmm. and that that back and forth. But also, it it does demonstrate that that he's not some sort of you know Puritan martinet with right. no sense of all. Um, well, I asked you about being a musician because I thought I'm I'm a huge fan of bands. Um, 
I play music with my friends very amateurishly, have done so since high school, but I still drive. What do you, what do you play? I play drums and a little, very little guitar, rhythm guitar, basically. I'm, unca- incapable of, in, I'm incapable of soloing on a guitar, but I can, I can play rhythm while my friend solos. Okay. So if it's just the two of us, we'll play guitars. If we're lucky enough to have a few other people, then I'll play drums. And, but we derive an inordinate amount of enjoyment and pleasure from that because the act of playing music together, if you're recording it, it always ends with people laughing, not whether you're playing something that was intense or heavy, but you laugh because you're present in a way that your film and some others that I've watched recently really describe very well the process of making music, particularly the process of making music for an audience, which is an experience I don't have. But, you know, one of the things I loved about the film was people have a romantic notion of bands and understandably so because of the freighted weight of rock and roll and what it used to mean to be a band to tear through your town in the seventies, leaving a wake of wreckage and destruction, broken hearts and children. Yeah. You know, just, just all of the things that, you know, people of our generation tend to think about when we think about bands, which is of course incredibly different in fascinating ways. Now the professionalism, of the industry. You don't really have what you had then in, in ways that really, I think, preserves the lives of these musicians in some ways, because people are not dying the way they would die from touring in decades previous, let's say. Having a heart attack with two prostitutes in a hotel room in Las Vegas, for example. For example, or just being toured to death. You know, in the example yeah. of like a Jerry Garcia with the Grateful Dead, it's one of my big passions in life is the music of the Grateful Dead. And, you know, Jerry did that to himself, but I mean, he was marched out there when he probably shouldn't have been many, many times. Now, Mm. to not lose my point, what I loved about the film was there really aren't other voices than the musicians themselves. Now, when, when you go a little farther, you realize we, I think many of us who are music fans know that Robert and his wife Tova made this very popular series of, of YouTube videos during the lockdown where they would record these sort of silly but somewhat musically serious videos in their kitchen wearing crazy outfits. But, you know, she's not in the film. Other people's partners are not in the film. You see Jacko's son, and it's almost kind of shocking because it's the one time I think you see anyone other than the band members or previous band members commenting. And I liked that insular nature because I felt while those perspectives might have been useful, what you end up with is I think something that feels very truthful to the reality of a touring entity like this, which is Robert's very forthcoming that he and um, <clears throat> the gentleman who passed away, I, I can't remember his name. Bill Rieflin? Bill are close friends, right? Um, but you also get the sense that other people are in the band it's not based on friendship is my point, right? It's based on the music and who can play the music. Now, some bands are like that and some bands aren't like that. I always think of Bob Dylan's never ending tour, another big passion of mine. If you read about or listen to people in Bob Dylan's band talk, you know, it's not like they're sitting around after the show and Bob's telling stories and they're, in fact, people don't want to know that sometimes people have no contact with Bob for years touring in his band, other than being on stage together. Mm. That's not a part of what's important necessarily in the way that band is constructed in tours. Other bands are different. I thought your film had so many people, and 
pointedly, not necessarily, the people in the band speak very well about it, Robert particularly, but I was blown away by two fans. The Nun, of course, has gotten a lot of publicity because the brilliance of this nun who speaks so philosophically brilliantly about the music and the act of listening to the music. Her words were incredible. And the guy who kind of starts his bite at the concert about, it's kind of like Scientology, it's this weird pseudo, that, that guy, that is the greatest description of fandom and live music attendance that I think I've heard in any film. And it really gets at the heart of this communal experience, which Robert himself is the first to acknowledge, like you have to have the audience, otherwise there's no music. Yeah. And your film starts with these great shots of these empty venues and the crowd, even though we don't spend a lot of time with the crowd, but I think you made really good choices with the ones that you do see and hear from. And I, I just love that being in that space of both the commercial reality of this is an entity that's touring around the world at the level it tours at. And what does that mean? What are the accommodations like? What are the, what's the travel like? There's a hierarchy of the Rolling Stones and Taylor Swift at the top. And then there are bands that are driving around in a van and getting at each other's throats. And I love documentaries that cover that whole spate of that reality. And in your film, these guys feel like working musicians who are the people I naturally gravitate towards having the most respect for. Not the most famous musicians, but the working musicians who go out there and do this incredibly complicated and difficult work away from their families. I thought you captured that really well. And I thought that's a part of what humanized Robert to me. I don't know. I just thought all of that was so important. It was so important to just see them as a band on the stage with and without the audience. Um, it got at the truth of that to me in a way that I just really responded to. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, the thing is, is that um, when it comes down to it, for everybody that you mentioned there, what matters above everything else is the music. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody has their own way of expressing that. Um, but I, um, I was just blown away to know that like after King Crimson stopped touring, Tony and Pat and another guy called Marcus, they get in a van, which Tony often ends up driving and they tour like Europe and South America mm -hmm. as stick men because <laughs> that's what they do. Yep. You know, they don't, they don't play in King Crimson because they get to make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars they play in King Crimson because what they do is make music mm -hmm. and music, you know, they may express it in different ways, but that is absolutely the most important thing. And that's why, yeah, as you say that, that King Crimson doesn't exist without the fans, but they, they all come together to congregate um, in celebration and communion of, of this extraordinary thing, which nobody can sufficiently well describe, I right. think but we all know what it is when we're confronted with it. And like you asked me if I was a musician, I've been in like, I think eight bands. Um, I normally end up just being the one that makes suggestions because I've got a terrible sense of timing and I am like genetically an anarchist. So any form of regimentation, particularly like rhythm or something, mm -hmm. I find very problematic for some reason. But there are times when I've played on stage with bands and been paid to be a musician, believe it or not. But there were times when I was playing in bands in New York where we would sort of get together and jam. Mm -hmm. 
And I do not think I've been happier mm-hmm. than when I had that sense of being part of something that like wouldn't exist if we weren't all there together. Right. But also you couldn't really tell what your individual role in it was. And particularly if like, if you're playing in a band and you know that you're the worst musician there, there's something beautifully humbling <laughs> about that. Yes. Um, which also allows, you know, to, to sort of use Robert's terminology, it sort of allows the music to come through you in a, in a very kind of innocent and free mm-hmm. way. And so there was something beautiful about that experience. But, yeah, that's what it is. It's like it's all of those people, they have this commitment to the playing and, and experiencing and creation of music um, where it is, it's absolutely the most important thing and everything is subservient to that. And And I think that's also one of the reasons why, the the musicians particularly the veteran musicians in king crimson are still in the game mm-hmm. because people in king crimson know that the thing that's important is the music mm-hmm. and that's that's the reason why they stay in the game and they do what is necessary mm-hmm. to stay in the game um the the guy that you mentioned who talks about it being like some arcane um mm-hmm. cult um uh is a guy called craig ward um, and he is an extraordinary musician. He used to play in a band called Deus, this sort of, um, they were a, a 90s Belgian band. Mm. They're still going, actually, um, who were, I suppose, if you're going to use a very, very glib um, comparison, you can say that they were like a cross between um, the Smashing Pumpkins and Captain Beefheart or okay. something. But, uh, you know, Craig really, yeah, really, he can play it, but also he really feels it. And I think it was important, you know, as you say, because when you were, you initially you were talking about this closed world with just, with reference to, to mm-hmm. the musicians. And, and Sister Dana really is the only exterior authority, if you like, um, because I just didn't want to have like a bunch of music journalists or other rock right. stars or telling you again is this yeah i don't want to tell what the audience what to think i think da- sister dana was great because not only cinematically there's something great of about course. having a nun and it's very interesting that a lot of the people who complain about the absence of women in the film mm. don't seem to notice that there is a woman at the heart of the film mm. uh, because she's a nun um but she does speak with the highest of authorities which you know i i really love but uh, the thing that was so important to me about her was that like because if she didn't work in the context of the film she even though it's there. great yeah. having a nun in your film about prog rock um if she didn't say anything of any any sort of significance or use she wouldn't she wouldn't be in the film but i think the thing that is so great both in terms of what she says, but also the fact that she's there saying it, is that she demonstrates that there is a religious, or at least a spiritual element mm-hmm. to what the band does, and and particularly to this idea of listening. Because, you know, in a music documentary, the focus is normally on the playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that's so interesting about Robert is that he, you know, he thinks about it from so many different points of view, um, and the film starts with a description of silence, which mm-hmm. is beautifully perverse in its way, yes. but it also demonstrates that 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 music doesn't exist unless you, it's not you you you've got to be. And this is something that is really important to me in my filmmaking is that if I'm making a film, enormous bloated ego though I'm the owner of, 
I have to be set to receive, not mm-hmm. to send. Mm-hmm. And and too many musicians, I think, and you know, Robert speaks specifically um, about this. Too many musicians are just set mm. to send. They're not interested in receiving. Interesting. You know, to that point, another thing I loved about the film was it made me really think about the fact that concert going fan-oriented concert going. I'm not talking about like, oh, let's go see this. Looks, this looks good. I don't know much about that composer or that band. I'm talking about fan-based concert going. It occurred to me watching your film that it's really storytelling. When I'm sitting there and I'm getting ready to see a Dead & Company show or a Bob Dylan show, or I have in my mind a world of information about what's going to happen, what might happen, what is happening, And the experience of the band playing the music and the audience understanding what they're hearing and seeing, it's a story. The band is telling us it's a form of storytelling. And it's, Mm. and when we're collectively together in those rooms of any size, but I mean, particularly those shots where they're at the Royal Albert Hall, I think, or, you know, we have, you know, maybe five or 10,000 people. It's an extraordinary, it must be an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary experience for anybody, but I mean, for the band particularly, I thought they acknowledged, and I loved the guy who flew into the show from Seattle, and you ask him a a question off camera about, do you think it's a solitary or a dual experience going to a King Crimson show? And he, without a beat, he just says, oh, absolutely, it's dual. I mean, it can't happen without both of us present. And that's so true. And, And I loved that, uh, it made me think about going to concerts and that there's a storytelling element to this all happening together, even though it's, I mean, one of the great th- redeeming qualities of the Rolling Stones is it's stripped of all that pretentious bullshit that happens with other bands. It's just fucking rock and roll. That's all you're yeah. going to get. You're not getting anything else. And a lot of other bands, there's pomposity and there's all this kind of stuff. Um, I remember I took a, an ex of mine to to see the Eagles play in Wembley Stadium, and she was a great fan of theirs. She was a sort of she fetishized sort of seventies rock and stuff. And halfway through the show, she looked over at me and said, "You know, still sort of insincere." It's mm. <laughs> <I was> like <laughs> those shit Sherlock. That said, Joe Walsh was playing with them. And he did Funk 49. Legend. So I let Brilliant. Very, Love very happy person. So as, actually, that Eagles documentary is very conservative in, its, in the way it's put together, but it's pretty good. Yeah, I love and it. And there is a brilliant bit in it where I think it's Glenn Frey says, the thing about Joe Walsh is that he's a great bunch of guys. Yes. Yeah, I love <laughs> that. You know, that's a four and a half hour, four hour, 45 minute documentary, um, which I ate up even as I knew I was being spoon fed. Um, but it's like it does feel like you're in the moment there in yeah. that thing. It, it doesn't. It doesn't just feel like this sort of. No, they're static. telling the, the guys are telling the they're telling some uncomfortable truths, and that's a band that yeah. has talk about a band with multiple members. And what's great about that film is you have people willing to tell the their anger or their I'm pissed off. I was kicked out. I was I was robbed. I was this. Um, but they're all they all kind of agreed to do that in a way that felt that it it got us somewhere in the telling which i'm mm. which i was grateful for
So I was also thinking about signs because I've always loved the story about the great drummer Bernard Pretty Purdy playing sessions. Incredible. And, you know, he would set up signs in the studio and Donald <laughs> Fagan and, um, um, Becker and Becker tell this great story in one of those documentaries about walking into the studio and not knowing that the signs were part of what you got when you hired him for a session. You got the backbeat, you got double time, and you have it almost shuffled. Bernard, you know. This is the famous story where where he you know he would come to a session, uh, at, you know in the in the early '60s, and he'd have two signs with him, and he'd set up these signs. One on one side of the drums would say, "You done it," and then the sign on the other side would say, "You done hired the hitmaker Bernard Pretty Purdy." <laughs> so it's that kind of confidence that you need, you know, yeah, to get a good uh, R&B track, you know. And they're kind of telling you something. And they're also, there's a, there's a meta text, a subtext, and an in-your-face text with the signs, right? He's, he's telling them something, even though he's, he's Bernard Purdy, they know who they hired, but he's letting them know that he knows who they, who they hired. Yeah. And I loved that in your film, you see these signs, which, which immediately made me prickly. I was irritated at the presence of the signs that, in my mind, I assume Robert Fripp insists upon, because it feels like a Frippian thing, which is like, which is common in every concert, by the way. It's just not always a sign set up on either side of the stage like there are at these concerts, apparently, which say what? You know, please, now that you are in the venue, please refrain from taking... Don't, don't use your phone, so you'll be required to leave. <laughs> it's very funny. It's like King Crimson, you know, there's this version of the film where I say, to actually to the guy from Seattle, I say, is King Crimson a cult with Robert Fripp as his leader? And he goes... <laughs> it's like this fantastic long Pregnant pause. pause. Yeah. We would have cut before he answered. Yeah. Um, but, um, and I kind of had to sort of embed myself to a degree in, in that kind of cult way of thinking. And it was very funny when I was editing the film, there's a point where someone in, and it's in the film, someone in, at the Pompeii show goes up and tells somebody off for using that phone, their yeah. phone. And I was watching it and I was like, that's fucking me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know i just drunk enough of the kool-aid that i'm right in there and that's at the very show where i'm like trying to sneak shots mm. because i also was not allowed to film at the concerts the, the signs where they do they do seem a bit controlling and and perhaps not unexpectedly so but they do also have the effect of saying this is not a normal rock show right which i don't think many, many people serious. expect it to be who are showing up probably but there's always your yeah. your basic yahoos but I'm also thinking it's the kind of music that you would think, being a fan of the Grateful Dead or Dead and Company as an offshoot, you know, these are bands that play and assume and release recordings and assume everyone is recording it and are happy for, for the recordings to exist and get out. Is that not the case with King Crimson? It would seem to be the type of music that fans would want to trade live recordings of if they could. I think that... Um... This is an area in which I don't have a great deal of expertise. Um, but my understanding is that 
certainly when I was working with the band, all of the shows were both filmed and very well recorded from mm. the desk. Okay. And my sense is that, and this is my sense, this is not knowledge, um, is that the the bootlegs from the past, that there was obviously an issue with regards to copyright and revenue and so on, mm-hmm. but more than anything, it was the poor quality, quality that yeah. was the issue. Um, so I know on the DGM site that they regularly post recordings, very high quality recordings, mixed recordings okay. of various shows from the past. Um, because I think they reckon, and again, this is just conjecture mm-hmm. on my behalf, but I think they recognize the importance of that being part of the artist audience relationship. Um, but at the same time that they would rather n- that that wasn't at the at the expense of the quality of the music that okay. was presented. Makes sense. And of course, the irony, and this is my other question, the irony is there are many shots in your film where both Tony Levin, particularly Tony Levin and Robert are taking photographs themselves from the stage of the very people who are supposed to not be taking photographs of them. And yep. I'm I'm always interested in how frequently it's the case that there's one or two band members who are really into photography. And it seems to me that Tony Levin particularly seems to be documenting things in a way that even though he's been present probably for more King Crimson concerts than anyone except Robert Fripp and maybe Adrian Ballou, he's still, he's present, but he's still creating some kind of a photographic archive either for himself or for the band's use. And Robert sort of archaically is using a point and shoot camera to photograph the audience very regimentedly in an interesting way in a couple of shots. What do you think that's about for them? I have no fucking idea. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. Um, Well, I know that, that Tony, I would consider to be a photographer. Yeah. Um, and an artist. In I think that he has sense. books too. I think he's released uh, yeah. photo books. So, um, and I, he's, you know, to, to use a, a word that's common in the King Crimson world, he's very disciplined mm-hmm. about his work in that area. Um, and he's a very good photographer. Um, and the fact that he is a member of the band allows him a certain degree of access, you know, mm-hmm. that, that I couldn't achieve, mm-hmm. for example so on um interesting there are a couple of shots in the crimson film that are shot by robert oh really Ripo vision i like that um because early on in the process he he asked me about what a good camera to get was so 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 even though it looks like a point and shoot it's the best point and some of the some of the footage is shot on that camera we see him using just a little bit, some some of the, the crowd footage. I think it's in in Chile that we use, and mm-hmm. then there's a shot where, like, a point of view shot where he he walks through um, the backstage. Mm-hmm. I think it's at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, so, but yes, I think for Robert, it's more to do with documentation. You know, that it's part of his process of archiving. The first time that Robert and I worked together was on a documentary I made for Radio Four called "How to Archive Yourself," because. Mm. I'm from the same town that he lives in, mm-hmm. and, and I'd heard that he had um, created an archive there. Um, so I wanted to talk to him about that process and why he'd done it and so on. Interesting. Um, so I think his use of camera is more to do with that. It's a sort of 
uh, more of a perhaps empirical record of of time and place than it is like uh, specifically. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a creative end in itself. It may be part of his creative process, but again, fundamentally, I have no fucking idea. Okay. And I wanted to end on talking a little bit about Bill Riflin because I think that was such a moving and unexpected part of the film. Um, I suppose we should avoid spoilers here and just say that if you haven't seen the film, Bill is both an incredibly erudite and considered participant uh, and a wickedly funny one at the very beginning. He's got a great, great definitive soundbite about, I just want to know what you're after so I can withhold it from you. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's the that's, essence that of the, the whole film. Start right? of the film is when Bill says. Uh, it's just such a brilliant quote. And, <laughs> and then again, something that you echoed when you ask him, why, why do this at this point in your life? And he says, well, the most glib answer is also the most truthful, which is, this is what I do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I found those sequences of the film so moving, of course, and harrowing. And I also found your part in those scenes where you're riding in the car with him very well handled and well judged for what could have been tipped over into a maudlin kind of look at me moment as a director in a way, because you're having a conversation with him that's very necessary in a way, but it could also have remained off camera because it's the type of conversation a director would have with a subject like Bill at that time in his life. But it tells us something important somehow about the whole film that he gives you the answers that he does. It's funny, Mm. it's moving, it's poignant, um, and it's never not truthful. And of course you couldn't know that that's going to happen when you undertake this documentary. And of course, the cynically prudent director in you has to be aware that you're getting something truly unique, even though you would surely prefer not to get that material in in one in one way, I'm trying not to ruin the film for people that haven't seen it. It's but it's, I, honestly, it, I don't think it is a, a spoiler to okay. say that um, you know Bill Rieflin uh, died of cancer um, after I'd finished filming, but um, before I finished editing the film. Um, but the thing is, is that when you are when you're in, when you're interacting. Um, talking to someone who is 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 dying Mm -hmm. you i mean obviously you have to handle it sensitively and and so on and 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 even in the context of a film it's you have to do it in such a way that people can cope Mm -hmm. with it but we're all fucking dying Mm -hmm. you know the thing is, is that some people, some people that 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 they can that they can actually look at the minutes pretty much as they're counting down. Right. But that's the case for all of us. The yeah. film starts with the metronome in the skull. Right. Everybody in that in that band is far closer to death than I think that they would like to be because they're old, you know. So Bill is just going through a more exaggerated and acute version mm-hmm. of of the human condition. You know, we are born, we become self aware. A huge part of our self awareness is to realize that time is life is finite, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 the nature of our our life is the the, the finite nature of our life is measured by time. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the original ideas I had for the film was just to 
to demonstrate that the film is running out as well because you know that's that's what it is so it's my mother my mother um died at the start of the pandemic from uh from not not from covid and and my sister died a few years before her mm. and um and i remember saying at my sister's funeral that you know if there's a point to death it's to teach us to make the most of life and it's not an original mm-hmm. thought but it's something that that um is is important to me so i think by by facing up to our mortality as bill did beautifully mm-hmm. um that it does actually improve the quality of of your life and and he also says at the beginning of the film you know he says having a sense of your your own death you know increases urgency and mm-hmm. he says i think urgency is a quality of king crimson's music and mm-hmm. it's true and it's like but also, you know, one of the, the themes that the film discusses is the, the importance of being in the moment. And if you are truly in the moment, both the past and the future cease to exist. Mm-hmm. You know? And and you do have a sense of being part of eternity in that sense, if you can be truly, truly um, in the moment. And so I was aware... I mean, it was heartbreaking for me because the moment... I knew... I, I was told that Bill was... Uh, had a terminal condition uh, I think a day before I met him and then I had mm. lunch with him and I was sort of frightened mm. uh, of that because I didn't know him well enough to care about him but mm-hmm. because like obviously you know this is how cinema works you mm-hmm. look at people in in certain conditions and you make comparisons between your condition and their condition mm-hmm. and that's how you create meaning in the in the medium and so on um and so I was immediately thinking about myself when I met Bill and so on but then but then I sort of I fell in love with Bill, mm-hmm. not in a sexual sense, but he's just the most extraordinary individual. And there was obviously this bittersweet beauty to the fact that you met this extraordinary individual and with a sense that he wasn't going to be around for as long mm-hmm. as, as like. But obviously that that also, it, it, it made time with him all the more precious. And I think Bill well, also, in, in Robert's signaling sing, singling out of Bill as I think he says Bill is the only personal friend who's ever been a member of King Crimson. Yeah. He says something like that. You get the sense that there's a close relationship. Um, and maybe even so close that like my awareness of Bill Rifen was as a drummer, but in here he's playing keyboards. Yeah. And I wonder if that was sort of, well, you know, Bill's still going to be in the band, even if he maybe physically can't drum, or I don't know if there was an evolution of the music or something. And that became a role that Bill filled. Um, I don't know if the musical, role that he played changed over his time in the band or not? Um, I I think I'm not really in a position to, to comment on that. Again, I can give you my subjective um, point of view that's just conjecture and so on, and, and that was that, yes, Bill physically was not able to drum in the way that mm-hmm. um, he used to, although that was the first time I saw King Crimson was when he'd he'd been he was drumming with them and he was the only member of King Crimson I'd seen play before. Wow. Because he used to be the drummer in the revolting cops. Yeah. He was in some heavy, uh, machine music. Yeah. Yeah. Like modern Um, crazy ass bands as a drummer. Um, but I was going to say that I thought his, that friendship that's alluded to and that you can sense there again, if you, if you have an antenna for band dynamics, you know, that humanized Robert to me in a way that this, this guy, Bill, so different from Robert in some ways in a voluble sense, let's say, even though Robert's very voluble in his own way. But I don't know. I thought my takeaway from Robert Fripp from your film was 
I got access to some dimensions of this person that you, that's not typically what you hear or read about or that he even puts forward. And I thought he opened himself up just enough in, in very key moments, or you artfully used those moments, perhaps more to the point, to underscore something more of the man himself. Although to end, I thought your ending of the film was, was that a director's parting shot to say you had the final word because you kind of, you use this moment, which could have happened at any point in your filming uh, as a finality, which is, which is a very funny moment of Robert saying, you said, did I miss anything? Because clearly you've been away and then you're, you're back with Spoiler that. alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, if you're not spoiling that, you know, that Bill's no longer here, we can, we can spoil the end, can't we? But I was just curious about that moment because I, I thought it was ballsy uh, in, a, in an impressive way. And I thought you kind of were, you were giving to Robert, this, this is my subjective. I thought you were giving to Robert a little bit of maybe what he gave to you. Um, because the moment I, works I, on multiple levels. On the one hand, he's being funny because you say, did I miss anything? And he says, oh, only everything. Only there was a bit that happened that completely defined the entire arc and history of King Crimson, but you weren't there for it. You missed it. Uh, and then he kind of walks off and uh, you kind of let him be him in that moment. And maybe that's the most fitting ending that you could have there. But were you conscious of kind of getting your own back, as you would say, in the UK? No, I mean, there was, I just, it's like very early on in that film, I was like, I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people and I've interviewed a lot of difficult mm -hmm. people. But working with Robert very early on, it just was like, well, I can fight back. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times, I, I, when I was at school, I was on crutches for six months and I was bullied a lot. Um, and I ended up actually breaking one of my crutches on a bully. Nice. Um, still lost the fight, but mm -hmm. that's me. Mm -hmm. I don't like being bullied. Yeah. Um, but I'm old enough, and and I've been in show business long enough to know that, like, if I fight back in a very particular way, the fucking interviews over, and I've lost the access. <laughs> right. Well, I was going to say, so, if you fight back in a very particular way, you get to win, which you do. Yeah, but it's, but it's also like that's not. It's I'm not interested. In yeah. It's. You know, I don't like binary divisions. So you're saying I'm that's no part of it at all. There's no part of that final scene where you are. Well, I just think it's. I think it's like. I think it's on the one hand, it's like it demonstrates Robert's immaculate sense of humor and timing yes. better than anything else in the film. Yes. Um, it also, insofar as I'm a representative of the audience, it allows the audience to walk out of there not thinking that they've been defeated. Um, mm, interesting. And I think that interviewing a lot of people in King Crimson, I think they do have the sense that they've been defeated somehow. Um, so wait, let me just unpack so, that. So you're saying that you're conscious that you felt that the audience at that moment of the film might still feel like they weren't given enough? Because I didn't have that feeling at all. I thought, that your, I thought that your film sort was of very revealing of everybody. about yin and yang. You know, I mean, that's the great thing. About about yin and yang as as a symbol is that it's not it's not mm. two halves of the same circle. It's like one when one bit gets more powerful, mm -hmm. the other bit gets more weaker. But then it comes the you know then it mm -hmm. comes back in that way. So it's more about achieving a, a sense of balance there, I suppose. Um, and so it's not it's not really about getting my my own back on Robert. It's about it's about having a very satisfying end mm. to the film. Um, but most of all, it's funny. It is funny. 
Uh, I really encourage people to, to check this film out. Like I said, whether you're interested in progressive rock music or not, it's a really worthwhile, valuable documentary film that's a superlative example of the form handled with intelligence, with emotional acuity, and with this incredibly nuanced sense of a complicated history that's so hard to put together. And yet through judicious use of the right interview clips, you get a sense of these conflicts and personalities and historical disputes and sort of just the sheer difficulty of keeping anything together as a continuing entity for God knows how many, what is it, 60 years now we're talking about some of these bands? 54. 54 years, because it was 50 years when you were, this was for the 50th anniversary of the band that you were talking about. Um, So I really enjoyed it. I'm glad that through the magic of the only useful aspect of social media really is that we're now here talking through just my simple fandom and appreciation for the film. Well, I think you summed it up beautifully. So I, I recognize that. So that's why I got in touch. Plus, I'm an inveterate hustler and <laughs> many people as possible to uh, absolutely to stream film from the usual platforms, with the exception of fucking Netflix. I hear that. Um, yeah. Jess, thank you very much. Thank you, Toby. I, I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you for listening. I hope you found that as interesting as I did to participate in the conversation. And I hope it's sparked your curiosity to check out this film, even if it's something you don't think you would normally be interested in. If you've seen it, please do get in touch and let me know what you think. And I will be back soon with yet another episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Thanks as ever for listening.